afternoon. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Um, we get a chance, an opportunity this evening to finish our series in the book of Ruth. We've been studying this, this great, great book, and it's been a short four-week series. And so today will be our fourth week. We'll be teaching Ruth chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you guys go ahead and just meet me there in Ruth chapter 4. My name is Ricardo, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, again, delighted to teach this text. For me personally, the book of Ruth and this series has been great um, because this book shows what God does in and through ordinary people. And if we're just honest, most of us are just ordinary people. We're not going to amount to that much more than what we think. We're just going to be normal. We're going to go to work. We're going to wake up. We're going to wake up and then we're going to go to work <laughs> and then we're going to or go to school and hang out, come home, uh, watch Sports Center. That's what everybody does. And then we'll go to bed. Just ordinary people. Um, when, when I say that, meaning like we've seen this book, there hasn't been any crazy miracles that have happened. Um, miracles in the way that we think about a burning bush or, um, or God speaking through a donkey or some of the other things that we read in the scriptures. And for us, I think this is huge. Because when we do our daily devotions or our normal days, we don't, I mean, at least for me, I don't just wake up every morning, go to the local daily bush, and God speaks to me there. Um, God has never told me, at least to my knowledge, to, to take a rod and put it in the Tempe Town Lake and part the lake so that the people of Scottsdale can come into the promised land of Tempe. Um, <laughs> That just, that just doesn't happen for me, um, right? But I do believe that God moves. In fact, one of the ways that God moves in normal ways is people in Scottsdale, they don't have to cross over the Tempe Town Lake. God allowed us to have the 101. It works just fine, right? And, and so often we don't see God's hand in something simple as that. And yet the book of Ruth shows, you, shows us that God's hand is in the most mundane, ordinary, day-to-day things of life. Um, if, you're, if you're new here and you haven't been following along, let me just catch you up. Um, we, we started this series four weeks ago. Um, the backdrop or the background of the book started and in, in the context is during the time of the judges, um, a time where the echoing theme was that there was no king in Israel and people did what was right in their own sight. It was a very dark, dark time. And in this time, the story of Ruth comes about. Um, it starts with a man named Elimelech who's married to a woman named Naomi. There's a famine in the land of Bethlehem, and they move, he moves his family to Moab. Um, his family, which was his son, Malon, and his other son, Chilion. Now, this was a big deal for them to move to Moab. Moab wasn't that far away, but the people of Moab were a cursed people. Um, they were descendants of an incestuous relationship um, between a man named Lot and his, his, his children, his daughters, who got him drunk and um, had a baby with him, Right? This stuff still happens in some of the deep parts of our country, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama. Um, I say that. I'm from Mississippi. That's all I need to say. Um, and so these people, that, that baby that was born from that relationship was, was named Moab, hence the Moabite people. They worshiped a God in whom they sacrificed children to. It was a dark place, a sexually promiscuous place and sexually moral place. And that's where Elimelech takes his family, his two boys and his wife. Well, why there? His boys marry women from there. One of his sons marries a Moabite woman by the name of Orpah, and the other one marries a woman by the name of Ruth, and then tragedy happens. Elimelech dies, and then Chilion dies, and then Malon dies, leaving three widowed, childless women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. At this time, we begin to hear about rumblings back in Bethlehem that the famine is over and that God's hand is at work. 
And so Naomi says, it's time for me to go back home to my people and around my God. And so I'm going to leave. And so she tells her daughter-in-laws that and says, you need to stay here for a couple reasons. One, in that time, in the ancient East, Eastern time, if you did not have a husband and you did not have kids, it was all bad for you. You had no provision. It was embarrassing. Um, women were not people who were highly esteemed and especially not Moabite women. So she knew the best thing for you to do is to stay here. And yet, one of the daughters, Orpah, stays, and the other, Ruth, says, absolutely not. And there's this moment where she professes her faith to God and her love for Naomi. Um, It shows God has opened up her heart in some way at some point where she professes his faith in God, follows Naomi, and then they come to Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, in chapter 2, we see God at work again. And God provided a way for them to have a means to eat and a job through gleaning. It was a temporary job, and Boaz was the guy who owned a field, and then Ruth comes and gleans at his field. And this was the beginning of what we talked about last week of a relationship. Boaz did not tell Ruth that he had a crush on her, but we said last week Boaz didn't have any game. He would have. Um, the way that Boaz had game is he shared barley. He just kept giving, I like you, here's more barley, here's more barley, here's more barley. Um, that was like the equivalent of chocolate for them at that time. And, and so Ruth is gleaning at the field. God provides. She's obedient. He responds to her, provides more grace, and she just responds in thankfulness. And then last week in chapter 3, we heard about the plan, the very weird plan of which the temp job was ending, and Naomi comes to Ruth and says, if we're going to get you married to Boaz, this guy who seems to have a crush on you, we got to make moves. And so she lays out this ridiculous plan to get really dressed up and take a bath. Remember, she put on her Vera Wang Moabite style. She sprayed that on, went in the middle of the night after Boaz was hanging out with his homeboys, drinking and eating. That was a paraphrase. And, and, and after he was done hanging out, she was supposed to hide in his threshing floor room and then come out and, 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 and let him do the rest. That's what Naomi said. Well, Ruth goes even further, and then Ruth says, not only am I going to uncover your feet, which just meant uncovered his feet, and in the middle of the night, she goes on and professes her love for him. Um, she asks him to marry him. She's like, I love you, I love you, I love you, and she's going on, and finally Boaz goes, stop. You had me at hello, all right? <laughs> You had me when you uncovered my feet, right? And Boaz says, yes, I will be your redeemer. Last week, we talked about the spectrum of what a redeemer could do. Uh, One one of the things that a redeemer could do in that time, it'd be a close relative, would come alongside another relative that had lost property due to debt. And that relative, if he had the desire and the means, would purchase that land back for his relative. Another way that a man could be a redeemer is if someone was in a debt, oftentimes they would sell themselves to slavery or even one of their children. A close relative, if he had the means and the desire, would go and now purchase back that child and give him back to his relative. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we, be, we see the Leverite, where if a woman was widowed and had no children, a close relative, namely a brother-in-law, would come along and marry her and have children to perpetuate or to continue the name of the deceased, only if he had the means and the desire. And so Ruth goes to Boaz, you can be that guy for me. You could be the one who loves me. You can answer the prayer that you prayed in chapter 2, verse 12, when you said that God would deal with me kindly. You can do that. And then Boaz says, I want to do it. I'm going to be that guy. I want to be the guy because I have the means and I have the desire. I love you. There's just this romantic moment, and it leaves this kind of saying, oh, will, Ro- will Boaz and Re- Ruth be together? And yet Boaz says, but there's another redeemer closer than I. And that's where we ended at last week, that Boaz wants to get married, He wants to have a wedding. 
He has the woman before him, and yet there's a dude in his way. And that's where we pick up in chapter 4. Before we get into that, I want you guys to bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we pray, Lord, that you would just bless us this morning, that we would see the text, and as we close this story, that we would see the ultimate hero of the story. God, we do pray this evening, by your grace, God, that you would give us wisdom. Lord, by your grace and by your love, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we may see the text clearly, that you would move in our hearts and show your great grace and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you, before you ever get married, there's things you have to do. There's legal things that you have to do. There's practical things that you have to do. And there's just godly things that you have to do. Um, for us, before we got married, we had, I, had to, I was holding on to my California license plate far too long. I had been living here for eight years, and I just wanted to hang on to a little bit of California. And they made me get an Arizona license. But I, didn't, I didn't realize how cool it was. It doesn't inspire for like 100 years which is great. And, and then after that, we had to make sure we had the marriage license so when we got married, we can get it signed. All the details. You got to get a tux. You got to get a dress. You got to find out who to invite. You got to find out who not to invite. Um, you got you to get your parents there. All this, just the minor, minor details. Um, we had one detail that, that someone dropped the ball on. It was in the middle of the wedding. It came a point where we wanted to take communion together and, and we turned around to go to the table. It was all decorated and stuff. Um, by the way, if you're not married yet, just do a cheap wedding. Like, as cheap as you can. Because when it all, I'm just being, that's wisdom. Because when it's all said and done, as long as you're there and she's there and the pastor's there, it's good. A couple witnesses and that's it. We have this decorated table. It's all nice and this nice goblet that was supposed to have the, the wine and, or the juice. Um, and, and, and when we got there, there was neither. No bread, no wine. And so the pastor who was presiding over our wedding, he turned off his mic, he goes, what are you going to do? And I'm like, We'll just pretend. <laughs> and then afterwards, I told my wife, we can't start this off on a lie. Listen, it was just, let's just turn around and get this right. But there's details that have to happen before a wedding. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, those are those practical, legal, and godly details that Boaz has to go through to have a wedding with the woman he wants to be his wife. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken of. He came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And so here's the context. They go to the gate, the gate where the elders were. Now, these were not elders like pastors. These were elder men in the community. Um, they were of influence. They were godly men of which people would come to and get advice from. So it impl- it's implied here that Boaz is either a part of this group or he's really close with them because he's a godly man. He just happens to be there. Now, here's God's providential hand again. And then the guy, the dude, I'm going to call him, comes by. The guy who he told Ruth, hey, there's this other dude in the way. And, and the reason why I keep calling him dude is, the narrator doesn't give him a name. Um, and I think the narrator is just like, this is just a part of the story we're going to tell, but we're not going to give this dude a name. In fact, in the Hebrew, it means so-and-so or what's-his-name. That's how important, like, uh, what's-his-name probably read this story later on and go, man, I, I'm like an extra in a movie, right? So this dude comes by and Boaz goes, oh, this is the guy that I need to get out of the way. Um, this is the guy that I need to remove in order for me to get, to get um, Ruth. And so he continues in verse 3. Um, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So what's what Boaz is doing? Boaz is saying, hey, do you want this land? You can have it. He's being a little tricky here. Not shady, not sinful, just tricky. Um, because he doesn't tell him the whole story yet. And so he leads this guy to think, wow, look, it's basically like this free land. It's, it's next to nothing. You want it? You can have it. If you want to redeem it, redeem it. And the man says in verse five or verse four, I will redeem it. And so there's this gasp in this story. We're like, oh no, he's going to take Naomi. He's going to take Ruth. And all of a sudden, Boaz and Ruth won't be married and have a bunch of babies. Um, Boaz chapter three didn't have any gain when it came to the ladies. But since he was an older man, he's got wisdom. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's been a little bit shrewd here, but he gives just enough for the man to bite, and then he hooks him. Verse 5, look what he says. Oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And so what he's saying is, oh, yeah, you want that field? That's great. That's great. Oh, yeah. Ah, one important part. I don't know how I forgot this. There's a widow there. Her name is Ruth, and she's a Moabite. Not too many people want to marry Moabites at this time because of their stigma. Oh, and she's a widow, and that means that if you buy the field and you marry her and you guys have kids, it's no longer your field. It's going to be the kid's field because you're going to perpetuate or continue the name of that kid. And there's this old lady named Naomi who calls herself Mara. She seems to be bitter. So do you want that? Do you, do you want that? And, and, and the guy kind of steps back for a while, reaches into his pockets, and he's like, you know, Boaz, Maybe you should have this filled uh, on second thought. Verse 6, he says, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance and take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. He says, No, I, I don't, I'm not in love with the woman. I only wanted the land. Boaz says, Because I'm in love with the woman, because I want to redeem her, because I want to marry her, I'll take the mom, I'll perpetuate, I'll perpetuate the name of the dead, and so forth. I'll do it all because I have the means to do it, and I have the desire to do it. I can't wait to do it. A couple legal steps ago, and they're on the way to a good wedding. Chapter, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and the exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, and he drew off his sandal. So here's, here's basically what happens. Um, in that time, they would take off their sandal to say, I had a foothold of this land. I no longer have it. I'm giving it to you in the presence of people and in the presence of the elders. And so Boaz would take the sandal. Now he has a foothold over the land, and thus now everything is set legally for him to be married. The last step, which is the most important step, is good premarital counseling. Um, before you go into mar marriage and when you are married, it's good to have counseling, not just for, for prevention, not just when things go bad, but it's good to lay a godly foundation of godly men and women in your life to look into your relationship and say, here we are, what do you guys think? And that's exactly what Boaz does before. This is the last session of their premarital counseling. And so he goes before the elders and say, here's the woman that I want to marry. And verse, verse 8, Verse 90 continues. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon. 
I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, but from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Boaz says, I just want you guys to see. This is the woman of who I love. We, we, we haven't dated a long time, but from what I know, she's a godly person. And from what you guys know about me, I'm a godly person. I love this woman, and I want to take full responsibility. I, I just don't want to be with her physically, but I want to be with her financially. I want to provide for her, her mother, and I want to perpetuate the name of the deceased. That's what I want to do. Now, this is really important. Premarital counseling is really important. That's why we do it here. Every single one of the pastors here will do premarital counseling. Primarily, Tim Anderson would do it. His line would be, first, I'm here to try to break you up. And the girls usually go, oh, no. And the guys are like, you know what? I was kind of thinking the same thing. I wasn't ready to get married yet. No, that's not true. That's not true. Just kind of. Uh, so, so we do premarital counseling, not because it's going to save you from having a terrible marriage, but because it's going to save you from having a terrible marriage, right? It's important to have premarital. Because there were social things that were going on here, and there were cultural things that were going on here, and there were ethical, not ethical, but ethnicity things that were going on. Moab, Moabite, Israelite. Two different cultures, two different races, two different social structures. And so Boaz says, I just want to know. I get it. I'm an Israelite, and I get it. She's a Moabite. I know the stigma here. I just want to know, is it okay? Same thing happened for Holly and I. When we came to get married, we talked to her parents. We talked to my parents. We talked to other godly people in our life. We realized um, her being white and me being black and her coming from a family that her parents are intact. They love Jesus, and she was raised in a good godly family, and I was in a family where my parents are not married. Um, my, my mom loves Jesus. My dad does not love Jesus yet. Um, I didn't become a Christian until I was 21. She professed Jesus at four completely different lives. And what we were told... Is that, is that godliness, godliness trumps cultural assumptions and trumps cultural norms. That the most important thing is that we both loved Jesus. And I think Boaz is here too. I, I think he gets, I know what's going to happen. I know what people are going to say about us. But I love this woman. She loves God. I love God. What do you guys think? And then the elders and the people responded in verse 11. All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephrath and, and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they bless it. They say, without a doubt, we, we, we want to be at the wedding. We think it'd be a godly wedding. We want you guys to get married. And then they begin to pray, which is another important part about just marriage, uh, not just premarital, but marriage in itself, that you're, you're praying with your spouses and you have people that are praying for you. Well, these people said, let us pray for you. And they prayed prayers that were specific. Um, and much like we should, they looked back into the Bible, they looked back into their Bible, and they reached out and saw the character of God. Here's what we can know from the Bible as God reveals himself, that God doesn't change. And so if we see God doing something um, before in the Bible, we can pray that he'll do it now. And so they mention names here. Um, if you notice the first two names that they mentioned, Rachel and Leah, and then they mentioned Tamar. These are all women whose, whose life started off horrible. These are all women who had issues in their life, that life did not start off really good. 
And I think because they know their Bible and because they know their God, they can pray their Bible, they can pray their God into a situation of what they know to be true about Ruth. Ruth's life didn't start off that great. She, she, she was a woman who was raised in Moab, worshiped the God that people sacrificed kids to. I mean, she was a woman who was once married and did not have a child, and she was, her husband died, and so they said, life didn't start off good for you. But we happen to believe in a God that, that can do things. And so may this woman who comes into your house, may, she be, may God do to her what, she did to, what he did to them. May he transform her like he did these women, of which he used to build up the house of Israel. That was a prayer that they had. And then they had another prayer. And the last prayer that they had is that may she bring you a son. And not just a child, but a son. And this was huge because, because she was barren. Ruth had been married for 10 years to Malon, and she had not had a kid yet. And, and, and that time, it wasn't like now where people get married and they want to hold off for having kids. They got married and they wanted to have kids right away. And they especially wanted a son. And so Ruth had dealt with the pain of not having any kids ever and then having a husband and losing them. And they're saying, may God, our God, the great God of Israel, Yahweh, give you a son. And so they pray for a miracle. They, 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 they bless the wedding. They bless the time. And then somewhere in between verses 12 and 13, there's a wedding. Um, the narrator leaves the wedding out. My guess is it was too good of a wedding. He couldn't remember it. Um, so he had a good time. Everyone had a good time. And so my guess is the wedding went great. Um, they probably had the reception and people were hanging out. And you know there's a time, in, if you've been married, you know that there's a time in your wedding where, where the reception's going and you've already taken the crazy pictures and people have come up and said hello to you. You've cut the cake and you've done all the, the stuff you have to do. And then you look over, the dude looks over to the, to the spouse and goes, it's time to leave, <laughs> Right? And then, and then, you know, she's in her dress and she's trying to be modest and she goes, I know exactly what you mean, right? Like, this is the time to consummate the marriage. And so verse 13, after the wedding, they pick up. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into, the her, went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And so now we have the marriage. They are one with one another. Uh, the narrator lets us know this is, this is a good thing. Um, them coming together and having conception, meaning they came together and, and oneness um, physically. And so it shows that our God is someone who is not against sex, but he's for it. Our God happens to be the one who created sex. So being the creator of sexual intimacy, he has provided the right and perfect and good context to experience sex and to be blessed in it. And that's marriage between a man and a woman in a committed relationship, not just only physically, but financially and socially and spiritually. They're growing together in their, their love for God. They're growing together in their love for God and his people. They're taking their monies and they're putting together. They are one. And the Hebrew here says that, that, that he took Ruth home with her. Ruth had gone from a maidservant to a bride in just a matter of weeks. Um, at, at one point, she was, she was gleaning from his field, and the best that she had was to be able to drink water with the women, the hired women. And, and, and then the next thing, she, she by her own um, weirdness, um, snuck into the threshing floor. And at, at, at this moment now, it was no more sneaking around, no more going in the middle of the night. It was public. It was, hey, come home with me, be my wife. And then they got to work right away because the baby's already there. It's like nine months later, there's a baby, just like a little baby just, just, just came out, little son. So God answered the prayer, little son there. 
This, and this is great. Um, and so for the original hearers that were, they were listening to this story, um, again, because Hebrew people, Jewish people, because they knew the story of God and because they knew their Bibles, when they heard of a barren woman, Ruth, who now had a son, they would have immediately looked back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 21, there was a woman named Sarah who was barren, and then God intervened, and she had a son. Genesis chapter 25, there was a woman named Rebecca who was barren, and then she had a son. Genesis chapter 29, there was a woman named Leah who was barren, and she had a son. And then Genesis chapter 30, there was a woman named Rachel who was barren, and she had a son. And all these women had three things in common. One, they were all barren. Two, God sovereignly and his providential hand intervene. And then three, the most important, that all of their sons that they had were people of whom God through his grace and his providential plan used to continue and to advance his redemptive plan in Israel. So they would have thought, wow, what is God doing? These were kind of signposts to say God is at work with ordinary people. This would have brought joy to the community. In fact, what we see after this that's exactly what happens. The narrator, without saying it, he exits Ruth and Boaz. And, and the reason why I think this is they're still new, newly married. Even though they have a kid, they still are trying to get to know each other. They don't know each other very well. There were strict laws in the, in the law that if a man were getting married, he would take a year off of like work and war to be at home with his wife. I, I, I wish we could get that back into our, our structures. Like, what? You just got married? A year off. Do what you need to do. All right? So Boaz and Ruth exit. And then verse 14, it's all about Naomi. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and his name may be renowned in Israel. The narrator shows the great reversal here. Because in chapter 1, presumably these are the same women that came to Naomi and said, Naomi, which means pleasant, sweetheart. And Naomi goes, no, 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 don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because God has dealt with me bitterly. And so these same women now were ascribing to God, um, attributing to God the bitterness that was brought upon Naomi. And then now in chapter 4, because God has been at work in his providential hand, these same women come and they go, blessed be God. Because if it were God who caused or actively allowed that, it's the same God who caused and actively allowed the blessing to come the blessing of a son to Naomi. And they begin to pray and they begin to praise. May he be renowned in Israel, speaking of the son that was born to Ruth and Boaz. And, and, and they continue in verse 15, um, praying and, and saying, and in some ways almost prophesying, that he shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and she laid him on her lap and she became his nurse. What the women say is he will be the restorer of life. Um, they're just picking back at the narrator again. You were empty, but now God's made you full. And he's given you a blessing. You had no husband, yet no kids, and now he's given you a grandbaby. Um, this is kind of a universal truth. Grandmothers love, they love grandbabies, like a lot. Um, we just had a kid three weeks ago. And my mom was in town, and Holly's mom was in town. Like, oh, golly, right? And so they're both staying with us, and they're just fighting over my little son. I thought he was going to lose a leg. And my other two-year-old son just like, what happened? <laughs> I used to be the dude around here. Now this guy's here. Without a doubt, they just go after it. And another thing that grandmas do is grandmas, when they raise us, when they're mothers, they're the, strict, the most strict people in the world. And now I notice with grandmas, they just don't care anymore. 
right? The kids, I mean, it's like, oh, he's got a gun. Ah, uh, so cute, right? <laughs> so, so here's Naomi, Naomi with this baby, and these women are praising God and saying he's going to be restored to life. What was once dead will now be alive, and, and, and he will provide for you in old age. And the Hebrew says there that he will actually meet your needs of food, water, and shelter. And they're saying, this son is a special son. And it says the son has been born to Naomi. And so they connect them to, they connect them together. And then she takes him and she brings him in and becomes his nurse. Literally, she, she sits him on his lap and squeezes her, him into her bosom and just looks at him and probably sings with him, probably prays with him, probably thanks God for what he had done in his providential hand. Now, these women, they say some pretty, pretty powerful thing, things about this son and about what he will be able to do and what will happen in his life. And the question is, why are they so hopeful? Why could they be, how could they be so sure of this? Like, what, what makes them say these things? And I think the answer is in chapter, or verse 15. It says, He shall be to your restore of life and nourish of your old age for your daughter-in-law. Here it is. Your daughter-in-law who loves you is more than you than seven sons and has given birth to him. Um, what they're saying is, it's Ruth. Um, every single week, we said we take a time to take a snapshot of Ruth. We have seen Ruth in this story to be the ideal woman, the ideal godly woman, the woman in which we read about in Proverbs 31. In fact, and, and the Jewish Bible, right after Proverbs 31, is the book of Ruth. We've seen a woman who has made a profession for Jesus and so, or for God, and so she's, she loves God, um, and, and she followed the only godly person in her life at that time. She's submissive. She worked really hard at the field. Um, she takes initiative. Um, she is a woman of character. She's known throughout the town, and only a short time had been there. She's known throughout the time at being a worthy woman. And, and these women now are saying, this is why we think that this child is going to be so special because this child just happens to be from this woman. And if this child is anything like this woman, he's going to be a good kid. He's going to be a good kid. In fact, Ruth, they say, your daughter-in-law has been more to you than seven sons. Seven was the holy number, the righteous number in Hebrew culture, and to have sons was amazing. And so, so if you had seven sons, if you were a woman who had seven sons, you were the deal. Like, it was like, you went to places like, oh, you can't get in. They're like, oh, I have my seven sons card here. And they're like, oh, oh, sorry, we didn't know it was you, the woman with the seven sons. Like, it's a, it's a big deal. And they're saying, Ruth, Ruth was more than that. What she did for you is more than what seven sons could have ever done. And so we come, we come to the story, and we've seen it that this story has been about Ruth. I mean, ha hasn't that been what the story has been about? How Ruth, this person who didn't have anything, who is in need of redemption, who cannot do anything for herself, who cannot provide for herself, and yet she's a lover of God, and then God provides Boaz, who is a type of Christ, who comes in, who has the means and the desire, and because of love for her, grace, kindness, he provides for her. And not only did he provides for her, but everyone who's with her, meaning her mother-in-law and the deceased. Isn't that what the story's been about? Up until this point, we've seen that Ruth has almost been the main character. She's been the highlighted woman in this. Sure, there's been Naomi. Sure, there's been Boaz. Boaz has showed godly characteristics. And like I just said, he's a type of Christ who comes in and redeems people out of love and out of grace. And so far, that's what the story has been about. And yet, in the next two verses, the narrator does something for us, almost as a surprise, almost a, uh, a hint of something bigger. 
He's saying, it may seem like this story is about two destitute, desperate women. And yet, in, in, in verse 17, we see that there's something else. He, he goes on, and when it says in verse 17, it says that the woman of the neighborhood, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and his name is Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. The narrator says there's a bigger story here. This story is not only about two destitute, desperate women, but it's a bigger story for its original hearers, a bigger story about a destitute, desperate nation that was on the brink of extinction. Remember, this is the time of the judges, of which there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. The narrator does something here in the chapter 1, when the first name that was mentioned was Elimelech, whose name ironically means God is king. During a time where there was no king, and people did what was, what was right in their own sight, the last name that is mentioned is David, the greatest king in Israel. And so for the original audience, when they step back to see this story, they've seen this, this, this narrative of this love story in God's providential hand, and they say, look what God has done to redeem Ruth. And then in verse 17, they step back to go, oh man, look what God has done to redeem Israel. Look what God has done. This whole time, God in his providential hand has been working through redemption, not only through Boaz, not only through Naomi, not only through Ruth, but ultimately to give us the king in which we desired and the king in which we needed, King David. So at this point now, the original audience says, this is amazing. Our God cares. Our God has always been at work. He will, he will hold on to his promises, the promises that he made to Abraham, that we will be a great nation. When it seemed as if we were going to splatter out, God says, nah, uh in the midst of the darkest time, I bring hope. And the hope is through a baby who had a baby who had David, the king of Israel. And the author, the narrator, closes with the genealogy. And he opens up something even bigger. In verse 18, he says, now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Abimadad, and Abimadad fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Ab Obed, fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, here's what the narrator wasn't able to do because of the time in which he wrote this. He wasn't able to complete the genealogy. So up until this point, it seems as look what God is doing and redeeming Israel. But for us, the good news is we have the rest of this genealogy. And it's found clearly in Matthew chapter 1, where there's, there's full of names where the genealogy continues. And it shows all sorts of names that we normally skip over because they're hard to pronounce. And yet it speaks of a bigger story. It speaks of the greatest story. It speaks of if David was greater than Boaz, there would be someone greater than David. And so as the names go on from Ruth to Boaz and from Boaz to a bunch of other guys and finally to Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, the Messiah, the Christ. So what the narrator leaves out, but what we can see now in looking at our Bibles is that this genealogy, this son that was born to Ruth and Boaz, who bore a son who came to be the king of Israel, we can look at the story and say, Ruth is not only about Boaz, it's not only about Ruth, it's not even about David. It's about the true and better Boaz, the true and better David, Jesus Christ, not what God is doing to redeem Israel, but what God is doing to redeem the world. This is a 
powerful story that shows forth God's love from the very beginning, God's intimate hand, his providential hand, and moving and guiding situations through suffering, through blessings, through decisions, in order to redeem a people and personally to redeem you, to redeem you. And so when we step back and we say, what does this mean? There are people that have stories in this genealogy, stories that are much similar to mine and yours. There, there are people in this genealogy that don't belong here. They're, they're not godly people. They're not the right type of people. They're not people who would most likely become Christians. In fact, they're foreigners here. They were not born into the proper race of Israelites. And not only that, there are women that are in here. And women just didn't get named and things like that. There's prostitutes. There's rapists. There's people that are in this line of Jesus to give us a clue, to give us a hint, to tell us something. That it was never about being like Ruth, who's a godly woman. It was never about being like Boaz. In fact, what the story lets us know is that the only way we can ever live a life of any godliness is if we come to ultimately the true redeemer. It's admitting like Ruth, we're all out and there's nothing we can do. Boaz can't redeem us. David can't redeem us. Only God can. And he has come and he's worked through the person and the work of his son, Jesus, to give us hope. Amen. This this story highlights all types of people that just did not deserve it. Um, three people, foreigners and women in it that we can just pull out. One was Tamara, we, we mentioned about earlier. Tamara was a woman who was married, lost her husband. Her brother-in-law married her, but she didn't want to have a kid. And so what she did was um, she dressed herself as a prostitute and she went out and she seduced her father-in-law into making love with her so they can have a baby. She's, she's in here. She's in here. Um, there's, a, there's another woman by the name of Rahab who happens to be the mother of Boaz. She was a prostitute and she owned a brothel. Um, she was the woman in whom in Judges, when Joshua, they came over, we read about in Joshua, they came over and she, she, she hid the spies for him. Prostitute, owned a brothel, she, she's in this. And there's also another foreign woman by the name of Ruth. So, so often we tell our testimonies, but we don't tell our stories. The book of Ruth to me is a testimony of what God did in Ruth's life, but it's not her full story. What I mean is this, when I tell people, tell me your story, I want to hear from beginning to where you are now. Because testimonies usually go, yeah, yeah, I was jacked up, but God's saving, this is what I've been doing now. But we don't really know who you were before. Chances are Ruth, being a woman, raised in Moab, was probably sexually promiscuous, sexually immoral, worshiped the God in whom people sacrificed children to. She had a past, she had a story. She doesn't belong here. If if being redeemed was about being good, no one would ever make the list. And that's why the last person in the name is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because what this story tells us is that if you are a Christian, you realize your name could be in this list because you're more wicked and flawed than you ever dare believe. But at the same time, because of the true redeemer, Jesus Christ, his love for you and his death and resurrection, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dare hope. The story of redemption is never about you, but it's always about what God has been doing in your life. And not what God has been doing, but what God is doing in your life. And not what God is doing in your life, but what God will do in your life. This is a hopeful story that that, that if you are a Christian, you see these people, and those are your people. You see this story, and it's in your story. You You may add your name. And then if you're here, and you're not a Christian, what this story tells you 
is that no matter what your background is, no matter what your sin, no matter where you come from, no matter what your family up- upbringing, whether you're black or white or Hispanic or short and tall, it does not matter because God in his infinite love has provided the savior that you need. He's provided the savior that you need. The, the best part about this story is that we can look back. It shows us in the life of Ruth, we can look back and we can chart and see God's providence and his love and ultimately redeeming Ruth, redeeming Israel, and redeeming us. It's a great exercise for us to do in our own life. Because God, God doesn't just always just, boom, just open up our hearts. What we can do is once we've already been um, Christians, once we've already received the love of Christ, we can look back in our lives and see, oh yeah, God has always been at work in my life. It's a great exercise. I, I, I really encourage you to do it. it. Take 15, 20, 30 minutes and just look at your life now, no matter how old you are, and see what God has been doing. For me, like I said, I was born in Mississippi. I was born to a mother who had two other kids, three different dads. We we're there. She wasn't married to my dad. Um, we were in Mississippi. Somehow God didn't want me to be there. I'm thankful for it. And so she wanted to reconcile things with my dad. So we moved to California. My mom's not a believer. My dad's not a believer. Well, my dad's father-in-law just happened to be the pastor of this little Baptist church introduced Jesus to my mom. My mom becomes a Christian. Now, she shares the gospel with us. She's praying with us. I never believe. We, we moved from Los Angeles to a, a town called Laverne. My friends were there. They played football. So I started playing football. God, in his common grace, used football as a means to, to remove me from Laverne, come bring me to Arizona State to be a Sun Devil. Yes, God's providential hand is through the Sun Devils. Um, <laughs> it's true. He'll use anything. Um, so, so, so I'm at ASU. Um, there's a guy named, by the name of Mike Sanfratello, who's our chaplain. He's the head of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Good guy. Shares the gospel with me all the time. He's inviting me to church, inviting me to his Bible studies. I hear it over and over again. Never believe. And then some random woman who I don't even know, um, who someone else knew, calls me on a phone and shares with me what I've been hearing for the first 20 years of my life. And for whatever reason, God opens up my heart. And I believe. And I believe. I graduate from college, I move to Peoria, I, start, I leave that job, I work at a camp, I meet my wife, we go to East Valley Bible Church, we come to practice, East Valley Bible Church, I meet a guy by the name of Justin Anderson, a guy by the name of Tyler Johnson, East Valley Bible Church, practice, I work at East Valley Bible Church, these churches decide to merge, all of a sudden, I'm back here in Tempe, the place I believe that God wants me to do the very thing of what I'm doing now, is telling you, God is at work in your life to redeem you, to redeem you. Because he loves you, he's placed his love on you, not because of your behavior and not because of your moral record, but because of the behavior, the love, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? He's at work. He's at work. If there's one thing we can take away from the book of Ruth is that our God is a great redeemer and his name is Jesus. There's, there's no better way for us to respond to that than to come and take the Lord's Supper and remember Jesus and all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we confess that we were most unlikely to be redeemed if it were up to us, if it were up to our thoughts, if it were up to our actions, even if it were up to the things that we do today, even having been redeemed. And Lord, we thank you so much for the great love and grace of what you showed us in Jesus Christ. Um, you are a rock, Jesus, and you are a redeemer. Apart from you, Father God, there is no hope, and yet you've given yourself to the world. 
God, we thank you for, for your scripture and what you, you unpack for us by your Holy Spirit to show us the truth of who you are, to reveal your character to us. And God, I just pray right now, Lord, as a church and as a people, Lord, that we would see this truth and it would melt our hearts. As we come to take communion, some of us, Lord, for the first time because of what you've done to remember Jesus. And many of us, Lord, um, this is something we do every week, God, but I pray that it would not be a routine or tradition but we would remember, God, that you are, you are a God who has done things in our life. You are a God who is doing things in our life. And you are a God who promises to do things. God, we thank you so much. We do pray that you would fill us with your spirit as we worship you and all that we do and all that we say because you are a redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.